Welcome to Living While Dying, an ALS story from Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Kathy Warzer. I am getting to a point with my hands now where they're so weak that I get really tired just driving my wheelchair. We're listening to Bruce Kramer, a man who lived a rich, busy, and fulfilling life despite having a disease that slowly killed him. Bruce had ALS, a disease that causes the neurons in the brain and spinal cord to disconnect, cutting off communication between those tiny cells and the muscles they transmit electrochemical messages to. In time, the muscles stop working and waste away. I've got to look into having um, controls put on the back so that my wife can drive it. And I'm sure she's really going to be happy about that. <laughs> she hates driving. <laughs> but uh, but um, it's just trying to stay ahead of things. This keeps moving. And I can fight that and fight it, but it doesn't help to fight it. It's better to just try to stay ahead of it. Knowing how the disease was likely to progress and planning for the inevitable losses was how Bruce tried to stay ahead of ALS. While he did that, he also kept hoping that researchers would discover a drug that would eventually help people with ALS. In the spring of 2013, he was in a trial for a drug called Tiraceptive. It's not really specifically for ALS or for neural degeneration, but the fact that it supposedly strengthens muscle means that perhaps you could maintain muscle strength for longer with ALS. It's very intensive. You come in almost every week until three months or two months, and then once a month for three months. And so it's been quite a lot of work to be in it. But Bruce was happy to be included in the tear-assemptive trial, even though he knew if the drug was ultimately successful, it wouldn't come in time to save his life. But what happened in that drug trial caught him a bit off guard. This was from a radio conversation we had June 21, 2013. Obviously, we're not talking about a cure for ALS here, but what we are talking about is if there's some way to keep whatever muscles you have stronger, that certainly would be helpful. Kramer started noticing positive changes shortly after he started taking the drug. Right before I got into the trial, I had been at Mayo, and one of the things I asked them for was a prescription for a neck brace. Uh, The reason being my neck has become quite weak, especially at night, was having a hard time holding my head up. So I got the neck brace about two days before I went into the trial, and I used the neck brace for about three nights. To Kramer's delight, shortly after he started the drug trial, he didn't need the neck brace. His neck became strong enough, and it stayed that way. He also slept through the night, both things adding to his quality of life, but effects not measured in the trial. After just 13 weeks, his role in the drug study was over. I went off the drug on May 30th. May 31st, I woke up with... I just felt like I'd I'd been taken outside and pummeled. (laughs) I was so sore. And, you know, my legs were sore, my arms. I had a horrible headache. And um, that headache has lasted over two weeks. The headache is mostly gone, but now the neck brace is back. To me, clearly, there was some effect from whatever was happening. And so then to be basically ripped off the drug, literally cold turkey off the drug, Number one. And then number two, to not have really any recourse to to this. I have given a great commitment, and the people that are in this trial, or the people who are in the Dexpramipexel trial, or other trials, have given great commitment to the uh, protocols, the companies that are, are funding it, 
but we're the ones that are doing it. And to not feel any obligation uh, to continue if somebody were to ask for whatever it was they were taking strikes me as being a little disingenuous. But if you're a pharmaceutical company, if you're not exactly sure what the drug does long term, is there an argument to be made here, Bruce, that uh, we don't know how you'd be affected physically from here on out if you were to continue to take the drug because it's, we've not really proven what it can ultimately do? I have ALS. Come on. <laughs> sure, there's an argument there. But what possible problem uh, do we have here with a person with a, dr- a disease like mine? Um, ALS is killing me. And I'm not going to be around for a long, 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 long time. Um, there are a few people that do it. I doubt that I'm going to be one of them. So uh, if that's the case, um, why not make the drug available? We were recently, I say we, you and I, were recently at the University of Minnesota Medical School for a lecture in front of first-year medical students. And you did talk a bit about being in drug trials. And Dr. Eski Teriyaki had talked about how, uh, how really amazing it is that you and, and certain other patients have gone through these trials because it is a little unusual because they are so difficult. Why do you continue to want to be in a drug trial? I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I think um, I do it for the social life. <laughs> the, the, the nurse that runs them at uh, HCMC is just wonderful. But seriously, uh, it's hard to get people with ALS to do them. I personally feel, and I, I know that people who are in the hard sciences disagree with, with what I'm about to say, but I personally feel that our models, um, the way that we go about testing drugs, and particularly for diseases like ALS, are probably flawed. We expect that there is going to be a cause and effect Um, And if there's a cause and an effect, then you should be able to interrupt what the cause does and fix it, or at least uh, mitigate it. And the problem is, is that with ALS, you have so many things cascading down um, in so many different ways. It presents itself in so many different forms that what might work for me probably wouldn't work for you or wouldn't work the same way for you. But with something like ALS, and when you put it into this gold standard, double-blind, placebo-controlled way of of looking at it, it probably is not going to show the effect that it might show if you were able to set the study up in a different way. Bruce felt that he had indeed been on tirasemptive during the trial and that it helped him. So he lobbied the drugs maker, Cytokinetics, to allow him to keep taking it. And he wrote to several lawmakers about his situation. I don't think that that letter is a raving lunatic raging against the machine. Um, I think it's a well-considered, well-thought-out alternative to the way we do things. And I'm not saying that I have the right answers here, but I I keep coming back to the, the fact that we have one drug in 160 years since we've known about ALS that the scientific method continues to belly up on ALS, and we continue to do it expecting different results. And there are people in, that are, are really into doing it that way, and they will tell you it's just because we haven't found the right substances. And my thought is maybe it's because we're not going about it the correct way. And so 
I'm hoping that it will spark some dialogue. Cytokinetics thanked Bruce for his insights into its drug trial, but turned down his request to continue to take the drug. Bruce's experience made me wonder about the ethics of conducting clinical drug trials in cases where the patient has a terminal illness. Why not allow a terminally ill patient to keep taking an experimental drug if he or she feels they're benefiting from it? That led to this radio conversation with Dr. Jeff Kahn, a professor of bioethics and public policy at Johns Hopkins University. We want to make sure that uh, the effects that we see in the drug are actually attributable to the drug and not to people's um, uh, mind and sense that they are in a trial and therefore are going to get better. So it's, it's called the placebo effect. We want to control for that, and we, we do that by uh, randomizing people, that is, sort of sorting them without their knowing how and our, our knowing how. So think about it as rolling the dice, and then half or some proportion go into the placebo arm, which is, think about it as an inert substance, sometimes a sugar pill is what people think of, and then the other part go into the active agent arm. And then the, neither the, the individual in the study nor the researchers know who is in which arm and then the, the data can be reviewed after the fact and the code broken, and we can see whether the effect is real or attributable to, say, placebo effect. As we've been talking to Bruce Kramer about the two drug trials he's been on, he has been noticing that he has felt better in a number of areas that are were not being tested for in these particular trials. So is it possible the traditional way we've tested drugs might not be the best way when dealing with diseases like ALS, very complicated diseases. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Part of the problem is the system by which drugs are tested and approved is that you, you need to articulate in advance the, the endpoints, literally that's what it's called, of the research, and there only can be so many. So you say we want to measure whether the mortality in the treatment arm is lower than the mortality in the placebo arm. That's a pretty straightforward measurement. And when you start to add more things, it gets much more complicated in terms of analysis. And so the fewer endpoints and the more obvious the endpoints, the better. And so in a complicated illness like ALS, it's it's really hard to start taking account of the constellation of symptoms and effects because a drug company can't prove that they're having an effect except in these kind of very clear and, and easy-to-measure endpoints. So it's, again, part of the process, I think. What is the harm of keeping him on the drug if he feels better? It's, it's a good question. Well, first, it would be important to know whether he was actually receiving the drug or he was in the placebo arm. So as I, as I was saying earlier, people feel like they're getting better even when they might be on the placebo. It's the, the power of our minds, which is very strong. Uh, so just knowing that you're getting something sometimes makes people feel better, and there are physical manifestations of that. So maybe there's no harm, but we would want to know whether he was receiving the drug. Uh, the second thing is we don't actually know the, the either near-term or especially the longer-term side effects, which often are risks, of a drug until sometime either later in the trial or sometimes many years down the road. So Vioxx is the example of the many years down the road where there were very, um, very bad side effects related to heart disease in a drug that was on the market, so it was outside of research. And the argument was we didn't keep it under research controls long enough, and many people were harmed as a result. So we want to make sure that we're protecting really the public and the individuals who are in the process. They have different interests, but they're interests that we have to think about not as a matter of public policy so much, but as the people who are in front of us at the time. And there's tension between those two goals. 
Do doctors, pharmaceutical companies, regulators do enough to acknowledge and respond to patients with terminal diseases, balancing the need for science with a need for compassion? You know, and that's a, that's a hard question, and it's, it's a, there's another set of stakeholders in that, which is the regulators, the government, the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which has the responsibility for protecting the public and assuring that drugs are both safe and efficacious, that they actually work before they're licensed to sell to the public. So that's the tension, and, and physicians and sometimes pharmaceuticals uh, often are, are pushing for more access on the part of individuals, whereas the regulators are saying, we need more data before we can say this is something that's safe to use and it actually works. So we don't want people to be selling the, the contemporary version of snake oil, right? And we don't want physicians to be saying, well, I think this works because I've seen it in two patients, even though that's not enough to draw conclusions. So there, there's a, a kind of a healthy tension in a way among the, the providers of care, the pharmaceutical companies that are producing what we hope are new therapies, and the regulators that are protecting the public. Is there a mechanism to make a drug available before the testing runs its full course? There are. There, there is. So there's, there's things called compassionate use, which sounds to me like what uh, Mr. Kramer is, is arguing for. So uh, pharmaceutical companies are, are able to do that. They have to apply to the FDA for permission to do that. They're hesitant to because, one, it takes a person out of what would be a controlled trial, and they're paying, the pharmaceutical company is paying to allow somebody to use a drug before it's approved, and so that's a cost, an economic cost to them. So there are strong reasons that they resist that, but um, sometimes in a very limited number of cases they're approved. Uh, are they also worried about litigation, perhaps? Well, sure, that's a very good point, and I, I should have said that. They, they, they do worry that um, they're saying, sure, go ahead and take this when it could be harmful and it would come back to, to haunt them. So I think there are ways that they can be um, indemnified from some of those legal risks. But uh, frankly, the, the system is not set up to uh, advocate for individuals to receive drugs that are um, not yet on the market. And should it be? Or are you comfortable with the system as it is? Well, I think, I think we constantly try to tweak it and, and move the system along more quickly. The, the history that people point to is HIV-AIDS uh, trials where we, we got regulations pushed through uh, appropriately, but they went quite quickly through the process by which um, drugs are, are, reg- are overseen and eventually approved. So the, the time from bench to uh, the public access was cut in, in half. In some cases, when there's, there are no drugs available for a, a disease, so from, say, eight or nine years down to something like four or five. So that may sound like a long time still, but it's much quicker than it, it used to be. So there's a process. I think it's working relatively well. There are lots of stories of people who say it's, it's terrible for me, the individual. Um, but as I said, it's really kind of a public health issue, uh, and individuals are sort of getting caught up in that process because they need drugs when they're sick, not five years from now. So I, I, I think it's hard for the individual, but it's probably a healthy uh, and appropriate tension from the public's perspective. That's Jeff Kahn, a professor of bioethics and public policy at Johns Hopkins University. Coming up on the next Living While Dying, an ALS story, Bruce Kramer has to make another big decision in order to stay ahead of ALS.